We pick up the story today in Genesis 33, where we left off last week. If you remember, Jacob had been preparing to meet his brother Esau in fear and trembling because of the terrible betrayal that he had committed to Esau in the past. Jacob then spent the night wrestling with a man, resulting in, surprisingly, the man, God, blessing him, changing his name and giving him an unforgettable reminder, a permanent limp. We pick up the story today when Jacob sees on the horizon a large cloud of dust. Then Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel and his two servant wives. He put the servant wives and their children at the front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then Jacob went on ahead. As he approached his brother, he bowed to the ground seven times before him. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they both wept. Then Esau looked at the women and children and asked, Who are these people with you? These are the children that God has graciously given to me, your servant. Jacob replied. Then the servant wives came forward with their children and bowed before him. Next came Leah with her children and they bowed before him. Finally, Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed before him. And what were all the flocks and herds I met as I came? Esau asked. Jacob replied, they are a gift, my Lord, to ensure your friendship. My brother, I have plenty, Esau answered. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob insisted, no, if I have found favour with you, please accept this gift from me. And what a relief to see your friendly smile. It is like seeing the face of God. Please take this gift I have bought you. For God has been very gracious to me. I have more than enough. And because Jacob insisted, Esau finally accepted the gift. The peace of God be with us all. Isidore Hochberg was born in New York City's Lower East Side, April 8th, 1896. His parents were Yiddish-speaking Jewish immigrants, and they had risked life and limb to escape the persecution of Russia. And while the Lower East Side was the largest Jewish community in the Americas at the time, it wasn't very safe. It was safer than being with the czars, but it was crowded, it was poor, it was dangerous, it was diseased. And little Isidore, the last of ten children, would be one of only four people in that family to survive the next decade. He went on to graduate high school, served in the United States Army during World War I, and with that hard scrabble, street smart attitude, graduated from City College. Isidore promptly opened his own business and went bankrupt when the Wall Street crash of 1929 occurred, and he was in debt for $70,000. And that may not sound like a lot of money. Today, but by today's standards, that was well over a million dollars. With nothing left to lose and nowhere else to go, Isidore Hochberg started writing poems and song lyrics. He had a little success, but that name, 
Isidore Hochberg. He changed it to Yip. Yip Harburg. I don't know if that was any better, but it must have been better for the time. And he reconnected with an old friend from high school, Ira Gershwin, of all people. And he began to have some success in radio and on Broadway, including writing the lyrics for a song entitled Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? Which became sort of an anthem during the Great Depression. And then Hollywood came calling. MGM Studios, to be exact, looking for someone to write lyrics for a new feature film. MGM and director Victor Fleming were working on a blockbuster, Buster, the first movie to ever use a new technology called Technicolor. It was a screen adaptation of a children's book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Hmm. Isidore Hochberg, a.k.a. Yip Harburg, wrote every single lyric that you hear sung on that fantastic movie. Every single one. Often regarded as the greatest film ever made, including the song that won him an Oscar for Best Original Song, a song consistently voted as the greatest single Americana song of the entire 20th century. Quite a statement. And you know it. Dorothy has this run-in with Miss Gulch on her bicycle. She goes to Annie M., needing a little comfort, and M. dismisses her with a wave and says, Go find yourself a place where you won't get into any trouble. And Dorothy thinks about this for a second, looks at her little dog Toto, and says, Some place where there isn't any trouble. Do you suppose there is such a place, Toto? There must be. It's not a place you can get to by boat or by train. It's far, far away, behind the moon, beyond the rain. And then she starts singing with that sepia-toned Kansas farmland behind her. Somewhere over the rainbow. And that song belongs to Judy Garland. To Dorothy, the only person who can touch it by comparison is the late, great Eva Cassidy, who I was playing earlier, who has the absolute best female voice of any woman to ever live. Fight me about it. You won't find a better one. But before Judy, Sarah, Eva, or her wise brother is covered it, it belonged to Isidore, to Yip, that Jewish kid from the Lower East Side who used the royalties for that song to pay back every single debtor he had gone bankrupt on in 1929, and he had plenty of cash left over to spare. Yip Harburg would end up writing half the dialogue for The Wizard of Oz, as well as all those songs, make movies with Fred Astaire and Francis Ford Coppola, becoming a rowdy activist for equal rights for women, face off against Joe McCarthy and the communism scare, win tons of awards, but somewhere over the rainbow will always be his, and it will be always be his greatest feat. Hollywood called Yip, I love this, the Jewish leprechaun. Small, feisty, always smiling, an idealist who wanted to write the world as he wanted it to be, the Washington Post said about him in 1981 when he died. Yep, had this to say about our world and about his songs, this being the introduction to one of his last performances of that marquee song in the late 1970s. Yip said this, as songwriters, in our songs, we work for a better world. 
a rainbow world. Unfortunately, we can't hand you such a world, but we can hand you down our songs, which still hang on to hope and to laughter, so that in times of confusion, times like these, when the world is a hopeless jumble, heaven can open. <laughs> Those Jewish troubadours who dream of a better world. I'm beginning a series of talks today about another Jewish dreamer, taking that iconic line, Dreams That You Dream, from Yip's Somewhere Over the Rainbow as the title for this series, I am returning to the extraordinary life of Joseph. And I say returning because I have written an entire book about this man's life, and I have had a lifelong admiration for his story. I met him for the first time when he burst onto the flannel graph board of my Sunday school class when I was just a kid, his infamous coat of many colors flapping in the breeze. His story was enough to capture my imagination as a child. It has been enough to sustain me at times as an adult. And I return to the latter half of Genesis over and over again, where he is the most crucial and vital character, and his impact on the entire Hebrew narrative can hardly be measured. And I think you're going to like him. I think you are going to identify with him. I think you are going to be intrigued, as I have been my entire life, at the adventure the jealousy, the deception, the injustice, the redemption, the forgiveness, and the world-shaking dreams that all drip from the pages of his story. You'll probably see yourself, maybe, in the arrogant teenager, the arrogant young man that he was. You'll see you and yours in his highly, highly dysfunctional family. You will feel the turns of deceit and rivalry and conspiracy because you too know what it is like to be abandoned, I am sure, to be betrayed, to be forgotten, to endure tragedy. And you also know what it is like, I hope, to be surprised, to dream dreams, to find love, to make amends with God, with yourself, with others, and to dream your way into a different life. Your life, to be sure, and the lives of those who will come after you. After all, where does Joseph's dream begin? Not with him, but with his father, Jacob. Do you remember our friend Jacob over the last few weeks? I talked about him last week. He was wrestling with God the last time that we saw him. And before that, he was dreaming of God at a place called Bethel, the house of God. Per Jeffrey Krantz, and I checked his work to be sure, because I was so surprised by this myself, but according to Jeffrey Krantz, there are only 21 specific dreams recorded in the Bible. I thought there would be thousands, because dreams seem to be popping up all the time. Only 21. Half of those dreams, 10, are found in the book of Genesis. And of those 10, three are associated with Jacob, Joseph's father, and six, more than any other single character in all the Jewish or Christian scriptures, are directly related to Joseph, the two biggest dreamers in the entire Bible, Jacob and his son, Joseph. This is a beautiful text today, but 
With no reference to deep sleep or to what dreams may come, to quote Hamlet, it may seem like a strange reading. Anna and Garrett thought so when I sent the text to them early this week. They had to verify that I was in the right place. Yes, I said, because every dream has to start somewhere. And Joseph's dreams actually begin here with his father. Jacob has finished wrestling with God, wounded, humbled, limping. He must now face his brother. This is his fraternal twin brother, Esau, whom he had swindled out of the family will two decades earlier. And old Jake has not had to face the consequences or his brother for 20 years. And now he's got to face up. Now he's got to see him face to face. And the opening verses of our text today show how Jacob made a calculated approach. He had four wives, Jacob did. We'll talk about that later. And he groups his children with their particular mothers. And he sends them out first. Okay? So he is sending women and children first. Why? To show that he intends no harm. That he is coming unarmed. I am putting my wives and my children at your mercy, he is saying to his brother Esau. It was like waving a white flag. But watch the text, just in case it all goes wrong. And this is sort of the sinister portion of the text. Just in case Esau wants to bury the hatchet squarely in Jacob's noggin instead of in the ground, and the executions begin, Rachel and Joseph are at the back of the line. Why? Hmm. Rachel is the absolute love of Jacob's life. We'll talk about this in the future weeks to come, but Jacob had spent 15 years of his life working for her father to make her his wife. He loved her like no one else. And Joseph, just a little youngster, is the product of that love. And he holds them back at the back of the line. So if disaster strikes, at least Rachel and Joseph, his true loves, might be able to escape. But such planning proves unnecessary. Esau comes out to meet his brother. Verse 4 in the text, Esau faces Jacob, that scoundrel, that trickster, that sneaky little shyster with more chutzpah than sense. Verse 4 reads, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they both wept. They exchanged gifts There is this animosity-free restoration. It is a beautiful thing. The decades have not hardened Esau, and they have humbled Jacob. And that is, at least in part, the fulfillment of Jacob's dream at Bethel. What did God say to him there? From Genesis 28, I have a slide here for you. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth, They will spread out in all directions, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. One day, I will bring you back to this land. 
I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised. Those were the words spoken to Jacob 20 years earlier. And now, Jacob's dream, now that peace has been made with Esau and with his past, that dream begins to move toward fulfillment. And as the dream morphs into reality, just like Yip Harburg crafting and writing a new world, the dreaming gene, the idealistic vision of what could be, that seems to fall in full force on Jacob's youngest son at the time, Joseph. You may say that I am a dreamer, John Lennon wrote, and Jacob co-signed, but I am not the only one, and Joseph will become the greatest dreamer of them all but a warning from Joseph's life. Some of his dreams, dreams that came true, were not like what Yip wrote and Judy Garland sang about. There are dreams that don't take you beyond the moon, beyond the rain, and somewhere over the rainbow where you don't get into any trouble There are dreams that lead you directly into trouble, dreams that cause you trouble. There are dreams that, on the way to making the world better, all but burn down the world that you find yourself living in. Dreams are wonderful, they are encouraging, they are hopeful, they are filled with laughter. All of that is true. But dreams are also revolutionary. They are unsettling. They are disturbing because they signal that a substantial change is on the way. You can't go with God and stay where you are, as the old saying goes. You cannot follow your dreams and stay where you are either. Things are going to move when you start following your dreams. A prime example took place 57 years ago this month. August 28th, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. in that blistering heat, and he was delivering a speech he entitled, Normalcy No More. He was sticking with his text, his prepared notes, but as he came to the end of his talk, He issued a challenge to his listeners to go back home, to keep the faith, and to not wallow in despair. At that exact moment, Mahala Jackson, that gospel-singing queen, started to exhort King. She was sitting just off to his left. I think you have a picture up there now. And if you look at that picture to King's left, just a few rows over, you'll see Mahala. She's got a magnificent little hat on. She sang two great gospel hymns that day. And as King is talking, Mahala says, You tell them about the dream, Martin. And MLK, thanks be to God, went off script. He began to speak extemporaneously, which is a fancy way of saying he started making it up as he went along, speaking from his heart, improvising, reaching into his sufferings and reaching into his soul with Mahala Jackson shouting behind him, Yes, yes, Lord. He said this, Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, 
the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And then he started quoting the Bible. He started quoting the Jewish prophets, dreamers in their own right. He said, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. And that dream was the crystallizing moment of the movement. That dream was the clarion call for justice and peace, equality and change, riding the world as it should be. And that dream, listen to me people, caused all hell to break loose. And it is a hell still burning in this country today, all of these decades later. That dream cost Martin Luther King Jr. his life. But what a life it was. T.E. Lawrence was a child of Great Britain who began his working life as an archaeologist along the Euphrates River. When World War I broke out, he joined British intelligence. Lawrence of Arabia was born. He rode through the desert fighting the Ottomans, liberating Jerusalem and working for Arab independence. He was scarred physically, emotionally, spiritually by that experience. He went home. He wrote a memoir. His was a story not unlike Joseph's in many ways, born into a dysfunctional family, a dreamer who rose above his expected station in British society, an idealist who rubbed shoulders with kings and rulers, and one who would save thousands, literally thousands, by his actions. I'll leave you this morning with one of his more famous quotes. All men dream, but not equally, he said. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake in the day to find that it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act on their dreams with open eyes to make them possible. There is a dream that God, the universe, the ground and sustaining life of all being has planted in your heart. You may not even know it's there. You may not know what it is, but it is there nonetheless. And to know that dream is to be as Joseph. To be as Joseph is to pursue that dream no matter where it goes. To pursue that dream is to become dangerous, your eyes wide open, understanding that love, grace, wholeness, God Himself will meet you where that dream comes true.